You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org slash connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hello, everybody. My name is Scott Cheatham. I'd like to welcome you to my presentation titled Myofascial Interventions, a review for the fitness professional. Now, before we get before we get going with our lecture, I would like to discuss a little bit about myself. I'm a practicing physical therapist, a college professor, and also a myofascial researcher. So I'm hoping with this presentation, I'll be able to share a lot of what we've learned in our research lab and also in clinical practice and bring some new insight to these emerging myofascial interventions. So um, I hope everyone enjoys this talk. Let's get going, okay? Now, before we kind of get into the really good information, we have three primary learning outcomes that we would like to obtain in this discussion. The first one is, is um, I would like participants to be able to discuss the science behind the myofascial interventions. Number two, discuss evidence-based treatment guidelines for the different interventions that we discuss, but also how they kind of integrate into the NASM's corrective exercise continuum. And then the third is be able to discuss, you know, common issues when it comes to scope of practice, indications, you know, what they're used for, precautions, and also contraindications for the ones that we discuss. Now, as far as disclaimers, there are no conflicts of interest with this presentation. Um, all materials are acquired with proper permissions, licensing, and citations. I do would like to, th I would like to thank um, HyperEyes for allowing me to use their videos and their images um, throughout this presentation as, um, as an illustration of the, the different um, devices that are out there. Um, one thing I would like to, to, to kind of share with everybody is that, you know, we're still learning about the myofascial world. So this presentation really shares what we're currently learning in the research and clinical practice. And I also, um, if everyone looks at the slide, the fourth bullet point, it's such a great quote as we move into this information is, you know, even Einstein said it, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I do not know. So I think that's a great kind of transition as we dive into the myofascial world and these interventions because we're learning stuff every day about this amazing system. So now when we talk about our presentation agenda, um, due to, due to the, the transition from the live Optima to the, um, to the online, we had to um, shorten the presentation to an hour. So we're really gonna be covering three primary emerging interventions, mechanical percussion, floss bands, and cupping. And with, with those in mind, we're gonna cover 
seven different topics with related clinical questions just to kind of guide our lecture and stuff and also give you guys some points to look at when you refer back on the material and stuff. Okay, so topic number one, scientific concepts. I think it's important before we get into the myofascial interventions to really kind of go back and look at the science of the myofascial system. So it makes us appreciate that when, when we actually do a intervention, how it's affecting the body. Okay, so, so the first one is, is really the definition is that we understand that fascia is really kind of like a, 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 um, a spider web that, that covers the whole body. And we realize too that there's different layers and there's different classifications of fascia throughout our body. Like for example, when we look at our back, we have the thoracolumbar fascia and that's very thick fascia, but that also helps the latissimus dorsi communicate with the gluteus maximus. So, so using that example, we can see that, that fascia throughout the body has different purposes, it's classified different ways and stuff like that. And so really we understand that fascia is classified with their distinct functions and layers. And I think that that's important to understand as we're getting into it. Now, um, more recently, probably over the next, the last 10 years, a lot of researchers and professionals um, have took a step deeper. And instead of just saying, oh, we have a fascial network, they were able to categorize it into myofascial lines, you know, myofascial slings, myofascial meridians. And if we, if we look at the slide here and we go from left to right, we can see that we've seen, you know, fascia classified as a lateral line, deep frontal, superficial frontal and back, and also spiral lines. So we have to understand that the myofascia is, um, is a integrative network of communication stability, but it also works with our muscles and stuff to, to help us with movement. Okay. So on that note, we know that the, that the fascial system helps with force transmission. Okay. It also helps us pre-tension our body, but we also need to appreciate it's rich in contractile cells. So yes, the, the fascia does contract. We've learned that more recently. Um, it, it's rich in proprioceptors and also nociceptors. Nociceptors is just another term for those pain receptors that we have. Um, again, as we go down from A to D, we know that it's an interconnecting tensional network. We just discussed that. We know it helps the body communicate with, you know, different parts of the body communicate as we move. Okay, but we also need to appreciate that it will adapt. So the, the fascial fibers, the length, the density will adapt to local demands. So if someone has a postural distortion syndrome, the fascia is going to adapt to that and that could lead to dysfunction. So that's important to understand. And also we know too, it promotes sliding and reduces compartmental friction among all the muscles and organs that we have. So it's, so it's so important at this point, just to kind of, you know, go back and realize that we have this complex fascial system that we're learning about every single day. So, so for me and, and my clinical practice and my research and stuff, I really appreciate how challenging it is to treat, but also how amazing it is. So, so hopefully, you know, you guys carry that passion too with me. Um, so we, now that kind of segues into our first clinical question. What are the current scientific theories behind myofascial dysfunction? Well, one of the most popular th theories out there is simply the cumulative injury cycle. And we see, we've seen this a lot in among the 
NASM literature and all the certifications and stuff, where um, the cumulative injury cycle really starts with that repetitive pattern overload. We're seeing that a lot when it comes to people at the desk, right? So, you know, all of us are Zooming more, uh, we're typing more, we're home. So we're really having those bad postures. Well, eventually, according to this, you know, theory is that this, these pattern, these repetitive patterns lead to tissue trauma. And as we go, as we go around clockwise on the slide in the diagram, it leads to inflammation, muscle spasm, adhesions, altered neuromuscular control, and then muscle imbalances. And so this whole cycle will occur over time because everyone's kind of hunched over the desk and we're having that forward head and we're having those typical postures. But over time, we can develop what's called myofascial restriction. Okay. And so as we move forward here, let's kind of advance the slide here. As we move forward, we can see that myofascial restriction is going to be kind of at the end of this cumulative injury cycle. Because if we look at the diagram on the slide, if we look on the left, we can see that we get postural changes, right? That's the distortion. Then all of a sudden we start getting, we start um, experiencing that cycle of, you know, ultra coordination, changes in force requirements, imbalances among the muscles and stuff. So the current kind of theory out there is that, or theories, is that the cumulative injury cycle uh, really leads to myofascial restrictions. And so that's going to be really where the corrective exercise continuum comes in because we're going to be attacking that, especially now that most of us are at home more and more. So I, th so I think it's, it's an important point to bring up, especially when we talk about the myofascial interventions, because they're all used continually to help people in that corrective exercise continuum to really kind of overcome these pattern overload myofascial restrictions and stuff. And so that leads us to our next clinical question. What are the current scientific theories behind myofascial compression interventions? So, so pretty much how, how do these, all these devices, foam rollers and, and everything we use, how do these devices actually work? Well, there's, you know, when we talk about the three emerging um, fascial interventions, you know, floss bands, mechanical compression and cupping, they're grouped in together with all these myofascial compression interventions because it, they actually push down onto the fascia, okay? And so with that, we can see that what, what I call the myofascial intervention soup bowl. We have all these competing theories that have been postulated over the years, right? You know, it, it changes someone's psychology. You're rehydrating the tissues. You're realigning collagen. Um, you know, you're blocking the pain, you're changing the tone of the muscle, you're promoting blood flow, you're improving gliding among the fascial layers. So, you know, so, so there's quite a few theories out there and stuff. But more recently, we've seen a progress of these theories that have kind of melted down into two primary scientific theories, the mechanical theory and the neurophysiological theory. And so the mechanical theory really states that whatever, whatever tissues are, tissues, you know, are, you know, whatever the tissues are that you're working on locally. Okay. Like for example, if I just take like a gun here and I'm working locally, I'm going to induce some local mechanical changes because I'm actually pushing into the tissues. I'm creating more blood flow. I'm, I'm creating a reflexive relaxation and stuff. 
Okay, so the mechanical theory has been around for a long time because you know if you roll on the quads, you know that the clot the, the you'll you'll basically see some changes in the local quads. But also though too, researchers went a step further and said, okay, well, even though you're pushing on the myofascial locally, we also have a neurophysiological response where the all the afferent receptors that are in the area are sending information up to the brain that's causing other muscles and other joints in the area to relax. So those are our two big theories is locally you're getting some changes, but also regionally in a more global level, you're getting a neurophysiological response. So I think that that's, that's, that's interesting because whenever we do these interventions, we want to pretty much think about, okay, why are we doing it? Okay, if we're foam rolling, are we trying to get the local tissues or are we trying to get a more global response and see some changes and stuff? So then that kind of leads to what, what we have here is this is kind of the recipe or the mix is, is if we look at the diagram on the slide and we go clockwise, we can see that um, mechanical compression, whatever device you use, stimulates the local tissues, but also the afferent receptors that sends information to the central nervous system it responds. And a lot of times in the gym or clinically, we see four observable changes. Pain decreases. We see increased joint range of motion. We see it, um, improved movement. So we might see a more efficient overhead squat test. Okay. And also we can see improved overall performance. And, and I think now if we look at the whole body of, of myofascial research, we, you know, myofascial research and interventions, we definitely have a lot of support for these theories and stuff. So try to keep these theories in mind as we talk about some of the, um, some of the emerging interventions and how you can affect your clients in a positive manner and induce these changes. So the first topic we're going to, or topic two, the first kind of device we're gonna talk about is those popular mechanical percussion devices. Um, now, when we look at kind of the literature or what's, you know, being promoted on social media or with the manufacturers, we have basically four kind of categories of terms. A lot of times, um, you know, professionals or manufacturers might call them mechanical percussion devices or just simply percussion devices, percussion massage guns, or, or they'll name it by a specific device or whatever. And so... I think it's important to, to understand that those are the terms and they, you know, you don't want to get them mixed up with other myofascial devices. And so one thing I wanted to propose is a description of the devices because so far there hasn't really been a definition. And so I'm proposing that we would kind of, you know, if someone's asking what these devices are, you could say, well, mechanical percussion is a myofascial compression intervention that uses a device to provide a rapid, deep, tissue massage to, you know, the myofascia, tissues, muscles, tendons, and bones. And so I think that that's important for the professional because a lot of people, you know, they use the guns, right? They use the guns freely, but they may not really understand, you know, what they are or have a regular definition. Okay. And so when we, when we dig a little bit deeper into myofascial compression and we look at the physiological mechanisms, Pretty simple. A lot of professionals and a lot of, and some of these some of the researchers who are starting to look at these devices are saying, well, it's basically like manual percussion or tapotment, almost like when you're chopping on someone's back or whatever. And so we understand that the the compression device 
is hitting the tissues at a very rapid rate. Okay. And so we understand that the compression force is determined by the operator. And so a lot of people are saying, well, it's very similar to the manual kind of massage techniques, but there's still those two underlying mechanisms is locally, you get a mechanical effect and then a more global neurophysiological effect. So that's, that's kind of the latest of what, you know, professionals are thinking and stuff. Now, one of the, the other clinical questions or professional questions we have is, well, what's the architecture of the, of the devices? Well, when, when we look at the architecture, and again, this is just one, one brand, there's a lot of great brands out there, but when we look at here, and I have one here, when we look at the brand and stuff, we can see that it has your typical plastic housing, internal motor, battery powered, and, you know, and other brands may have different body types and stuff. So for you as professionals, you know, you want to pick the one that you can use the most and stuff. Um, for, for me, you know, I, I, I use different brands and stuff and I, I like them. It just really depends on the setting I'm in or what type of, you know, client I'm working with. Um, when we talk about speeds and stuff, um, what, what, you know, what I meant, in, if you look at the slide here, the first bullet point is most high-end devices use you know, use three speeds. Those are the primary ones that we see like in the stores or um, marketed, the, the three primary manufacturers. They typically use three speeds, which obviously level one is low, level three is high. Now there's other brands that are produced, like you might see on Amazon and stuff. They have, sometimes I've seen up to 20 settings. So 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 whatever, whatever fits your, you know, professional practice, I think it's, it's good to match the device with that. Okay. Also to just remember, there's a lot of different applicator tips that, 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 um, that are used, you know, and these applicator tips, um, you know, are suggested to be used on different parts of the body. We'll see some videos here in a second that show the different tips and stuff from there. So just, just remember that there's a lot of variety now with these devices and stuff and, you know, clients really enjoy them. And then also to just, just a quick breakdown, you know, battery life's important, especially, especially for if we're going to people's homes or we're more out in the field. Um, you know, we have a range of batteries from 30 minutes to three hours. And again, this is the information I got from the website. So there, they, these could be different with some of the newer models coming out because, you know, they're being produced pretty regularly. Next research question is, or kind of clinical question is, well, what is the research behind these devices? Well, as we can see, unfortunately, uh, believe it or not, there's no clinical research in a peer-reviewed journal on mechanical percussion. So we, we use these popular devices so much, but currently there's really no research on it. And I, and I thought it was interesting. Now, a lot of the manufacturers before COVID, they had several studies ongoing. So we should start seeing some, some peer-reviewed journal articles coming out. That'll help drive our practice with these, right? With different clients, with injuries, with non-injuries and stuff. And then, and now as we're moving through, the, 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 the one thing we did do mo more recently was we came up with a survey, okay? And um, back in late 2019, late 2020, because there was no clinical research, um, my colleague and I, we did a survey um, of uh, 425 health professionals, okay? And we used 25 questions and we really tried to, um, 
you know, we really try to dig deeper and find out what are the trends in the industry. Okay. So think about this. We have no research on these. They're being sold everywhere. They're being used. We don't really have any evidence-based guidelines. And I think that's important for us to do. So, so before we embarked on our research doing this, we actually wanted to survey professionals and say, well, what are you guys doing? And so I think that that's important to look at. And so just in quick summary, we can see that the, that you know the Hyperice, Hypervolt, and the Theragun are the two most popular devices among the 400 plus people surveyed. We understand too, if we look at trends, pre-workout, post-workout, pain modulation, and myofascial mobility, most professionals, if they use them with clients for any of those, you know, kind of, let's say treatments or whatever, use the level one and the level two. They didn't do the level three or whatever. Um, also, what was interesting is most, most professionals reported a 30 second to three minute treatment duration per muscle group for pre and post exercise pain and also myofascial mobility. We see a few, we see a little bit up to five minutes, but we're still seeing between that 30 second to five minute window. And then also when we talk about motion, we talk about moving, okay, moving it, moving the device back and forth. And pretty much unanimously, they agreed that about a two to two to 10 second was there. So we can see that the majority of professionals are using similar trends. And then also too, though, there's there was a range of 15 to 30% of respondents who use no guidelines. They just kind of just do it randomly and stuff like that. So, so it's pretty interesting when we look at these findings, because once we get back in our research lab, we're going to be able to take these findings and actually start doing more controlled studies and stuff. So I thought that was an interesting tidbit to share. Um, now though, here, here's one, one question is what are some of the common techniques? Well, due to time, I wanted to show you guys a, you know, a few common techniques that are, that are pretty much done with the hypervolt videos and stuff. So as we can see just in the first video up on the left, a lot of times they just go through and they just do almost like a sweeping motion when it comes to a, a lot of the videos and stuff. And um, I'm not sure if the other ones are going, we'll see. Um, but we can definitely, um, you know, just kind of see from this one video that started that the, you know, that it's more of just like a general sweeping motion. There's really no protocols. And we can see the other one starting here. Um, as you can see, just with the different body parts, there really isn't any, you know, organization or any way to do it. So I, I thought that that's kind of interesting as we look at these videos. Then if we look at the upper body, we can see, you know, we, we see, you know, like the flat attachment, we see different heads being used. But again, it's just more of a simple sweeping motion and stuff that we're seeing. Okay, and that just kind of gives you guys a quick thing. And, and again, these videos are on, on online and stuff if you guys would like to see them. So, so that kind of gives us an idea and stuff. Now, what I, what I usually do with my clients is I usually kind of do three techniques I want to share. I typically do the sweeping technique, right, where we, where we go back and forth you know, on that. I also do the drill if I want to, you know, you know, really kind of stay on one, let's say trigger point area or tender point area. And also I do the clock where I kind of go back and forth and stuff like that. So, so I kind of play with the, you know, the different ways of moving the device. But again, there's really no science behind it and stuff. But I do want you guys to kind of 
focus in on the lower right image right there. As we can see, when we're impacting the myofascia with, with the device, it's definitely creating, you know, that, that kind of that wave, as you can see, also on the lower left image. Okay, so we're, we're really creating that fast myofascial compression, which induces those theories that we had talked about earlier. Okay, so I think that's important to kind of highlight. Okay, and then so then when we get to our kind of our final, you know, kind of professional clinical question is, well, what are the obvious precautions and contraindications? Well, obviously over the face, the cervical spine, um, using that over nerves and vessels, anterior abdominals, lumbar spine, and also the kidney region. And again, you know, you know, as a professional, you want to be safe with all your clients. So if you are use, if you're the one who is doing this, you know, you want to be careful over areas that could be more sensitive. And that's why you screen the client first before you do this, because you just want to protect them and protect yourself. So just, just a thought on that one. Okay. So bottom line is when we, when we talk about this, we know that professionals are using all these devices, right? They're using all these devices with really no guidelines. Um, the survey study we did kind of gives us a little bit of insight. Hopefully we'll see more research, but really we should probably follow the other myofascial intervention research for those guidelines. So my final bottom line evidence base is gonna be an F. We don't really have a lot, but again, if you are gonna integrate this into your practice, please be careful, screen the client and just have fun with it and just be safe. I think that that's, that's the best approach to this. Okay, all right, our next topic is gonna be floss bands. Now, when we talk about floss bands, um, we know that there's different terms in the literature, right? Um, again, floss bands, compression bands, voodoo bands, work out of the day bands, okay? Blood flow restriction, okay, that's another one. Even though the bands are not, some people confuse it with the, with the other science. And there's also other commercial names. So when we look at the description of a band, we can see as, you know, I have a kind of example here. When we talk about a simple band, it's, it's latex or non-latex, right? And it comes in either two inch or four inch, okay? If you've never seen these before, and it's seven feet in length, okay? The thickness though, as we can see, it's about five millimeters in there. Okay, so, so these bands are really, are really used, and we kind of move on, are, are really used to, to wrap a body part circumferentially, okay, to create compression, okay? And so the technique, if you, if you see the picture on the right, um, and also the lower picture on the right, if we see that, we can see that we typically wrap the body part with the band, okay? We wrap the body part using a... 50-50 or 50-90 um, recipe. So that means wrapping it at 50% overlap, using a tension of 50 to 90%. And then once you wrap the body part, you do a two-minute intervention that includes um, active and passive movements to really get that massage or that shearing in there. Okay? So if we look here, we can look at the images. And if we look going from the top, the top left to the top right to the lower right, to, to the, you know, to the lower left, to lower right, we can see that we first do a distal, right, to proximal pattern. So if we're looking at the quads here, we're wrapping it um, just above the knee and we keep wrapping till we move superiorly up towards the hip, okay? Once it's wrapped, then we 
um, you know, we anchor it by tucking it in and then we do a two minute intervention. And so if we look at the video here, we're gonna see um, a, a simple one from here where the model is actually, again, wrapping, right? 50% overlap, okay? Wrapping around the knee. Okay, and you can see that they're pulling at a certain percentage. And again, though, this, this tension is approximated. There's no, there's no specific recipe for that. And then as we can see, the model's doing a combination of open kinetic chain and closed kinetic chain movement. The goal is to let the band have that tangential shearing and really kind of massage and stretch and mobilize that area, okay? And so that's kind of the, the thought behind these bands, okay? And so now, as we move into our next kind of professional question, well, what's the research behind it, you know? Believe it or not, we actually got some research, which I'm excited about. So, so again, remember, like around 2012, 2015, the voodoo bands and these bands started getting popular. Well, we started seeing research around 2016 from from the you know around 2016 from some researchers and then they were published in 2017 so if we look at the if we look at the slide in the diagram we're going to go clockwise okay so th the researchers did find positive post-intervention outcomes in joint range of motion of the shoulder and the ankle okay also too um researchers found that um sports performance increased using the, the, uh, the high jump and the sprint after an intervention. We also know too, if we look at the bottom, that the, the intervention um, also helps with edema, right? Because it causes that compression. And also in 2017, Borda and Selhorst also documented that there was positive outcomes with Achilles tendonitis or tendinopathy. So we can see just from this slide, we're starting to see some evidence come through that wrapping you know, wrapping the body and doing these movements really has an effect on the myofascial system. And so I think the floss bands are fun if you've ever tried them with clients. Um, I think it's something to, to consider as you look to these newer emerging interventions and stuff. Okay. And then obviously we go back to our, 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 our safety, right? What are uh, precautions and contraindications? Well, one of the big ones I want to really make sure we kind of drive home today is skin allergies are huge. Okay. So, so if your client has a uh, skin allergy to latex or sensitivity, it, it's going to be hard for them to use this. So you need to be careful with that. Obviously open wounds over nerves and vessels, someone with poor sensation, like, like diabetes, that's going to be huge because they're not going to feel it. Okay. Um, also there's a term thrombophlebitis. That's like a blood clot. Obviously that's, that's a contraindication. And also if someone has vascular insufficiency, like they have poor circulation, this would constrict it even more and that could be a contraindication. So these are kind of the obvious ones that are kind of glaring out. But again, though, as you work with your clients and you're introducing this, you have to look at each, each client on an individual basis to make sure it's safe. Okay, our, la our, our, our final kind of intervention topic, right? Topic four is gonna be cupping. Okay, now with cupping, 
We know in the we know in in the United States, cupping is is really kind of grouped into the complementary and alternative medicines, and and it's funny because um, in in Western society they kind of group it in with like acupuncture and stuff. But as we all know, cupping's been around for thousands of years, and so over the years it has come up with different terms in the research literature online everything we see. A lot of times people just call it cupping therapy, myofascial cupping, myofascial decompression. That's kind of a more recent one. Dry cupping, wet cupping. Those are two different ways of doing it. Hijama is the Arabic term for it. And there's also other ancient terms. So I think it's really interesting to see how over the years, it's kind of, you know, the name or the terms have kind of morphed. Now, when we look at the history though, it's really interesting. Um, Cupping was first documented way back in 3500 BC by the Egyptians. And then as, as it progressed through the years, it went from Egypt to Greece, to the Middle East, to Asia. And then in the 1800s, it became popular in Europe. And then today it's popular worldwide, okay? So again, we're seeing kind of this divergent change of, you know, cupping has historically been a mainstream medical treatment. But now since it's been kind of westernized in a sense, we're, we're seeing it more as a myofascial intervention. And as if you all remember it, in my opinion, it really got popular when the Olympics started showing all the athletes with the crop circles. Remember that? Yeah, that's kind of my fun way of discussing it. But when they have the, you know, the, the, the results of the cupping, they call it petechia from the cupping, that's when it really became popular. So a lot of practitioners, especially in the United States, are actually using it. So I think, I think that that's important. Um, so then on that note, now that kind of leads into um, our next um, topic is, our next clinical question is, what are the proposed physiological responses that occur with cupping? Well, right now, there's really two theories, okay? So if I just have like a regular silicone cup here, we can see that if I push down on my arm, I create a negative pressure and it gets stuck here to my skin, okay? So the negative pressure inside, okay, has a cellular and a physiological response. And so one of the theories is, is that negative pressure will dilate the capillaries in the area and actually cause rupture and bleeding. And due to that, that's that redness that those are the crop circles I joke about, that that redness induces a inflammatory um, immune reaction, and that helps to rid the body of these toxins, okay? And so that's one of this, the, the theories that have been around the, the last couple thousand years of how they used it. But now though, since it's been more modernized and more current thinking, a lot of professionals and researchers look at more of the global physiological effects. So if we look at, if we look at the diagram on the, on the right, we can see you know, that some believe there's a mechanical effect, it reduces pain, it has a neurophysiological effect, it improves circulation, um, it balances the chi, the energy. So if you're following Eastern medicine, more current, um, it also creates an immune response and also changes fluid dynamics. So we can see that both of these theories kind of go hand in hand, right? They kind of overlap each other, but 
either way, there has to be purpose of what we do. And I think that that's important that, you know, those of you who are, are licensed to do this or, you know, it's safe for you to do this on a client, you got to kind of ask yourself, why am I doing Cubby? And so I think that's important to kind of keep in context as we dig a little bit deeper and we talk into it a little bit more. Okay. So our next, our next question is, well, what are the treatment standards? Okay. Well, it's kind of interesting when we look a little bit deeper because the rationale is really to, you know, you know, use the suction to promote movement of fluids, lymph, and blood in the whole myofascial system. Well, traditional thought, remember, way back with the Egyptians, they use cupping as a form of detoxification, okay, or medical treatment for various conditions. So that's important to realize because that's where the Eastern kind of, you know, philosophy of it being a primary medical treatment is. But now the more current thought is, as we kind of, in my opinion, say we kind of westernized it, is that it's actually used as a myofascial intervention. So when you talk to clients or whatever, you kind of have to decipher which, which, which one are we talking about? Are we talking about the traditional cupping, which might be kind of paired with acupuncture, or are we talking about just a simple myofascial intervention? Okay, and I think that's important as professionals for us to have those conversations with our clients, but also have a working understanding of what they are. Okay, next, next kind of clinical question on this topic is, well, what are the different types of cupping devices? Well, gosh, we have, we have quite a few. You know, we have the silicone, which I kind of showed you guys an example here, right? This is a standard, you know, kind of silicone cup. We also have plastic cups where you guys can see here, here, a plastic with a pump and all that. And then if we look at the image down on the right, we could see that other, you know, in other parts of the world, they use buffalo horn. They use, you know, I think, you know, there's, it looks like there's some stone there. You know, they, they use a lot of different materials and stuff. So again, with cupping been around for so many thousands of years, right? We can see that it has changed over time. But at least here in the United States, um, using the silicone cups or the plastic ones seem to be the most popular among professionals. Okay, so then when we look at cupping classifications, um, I, I know I, I know when you look at the slide, it's, it's, it's kind of dense, but I wanted to show everybody how comprehensive cupping can be. If we go from left to right and we look at each column, we can see that cupping can be described by the technical type, dry cupping, flash cupping, wet cupping, massage. It can also be described by the suction type, right? Light all the way to strong cupping. It can be described as a suction method, right? Or it can be described as an adjunct therapy to other things like, let's say like acupuncture or other type of treatments, or it can be described as a specific treatment. So we can see that the that, that cupping is so widely used that there's, there's a lot of, there's a big body of nomenclature, right? There's a big body of terms and stuff. So I just want everyone to kind of realize that, you know, using the term cupping is good, but once you become a practitioner, there's a lot more to it than just saying, oh, I'm gonna cup somebody, okay? And then that leads to our next question is, what are common practice patterns among professionals? Well, like we mentioned, you know, dry cupping, right? And I, and I demonstrated before, you know, dry cupping just, coming here from here um, is primarily used among 
you know, allied health professionals, rehab professionals in the, in the United States. And I think that that's a popular one that we use because, you know, you're, you're not really, you know, breaking the skin or you're not really causing, you know, too much damage. You're really just trying to um, influence the myofascia, right. And create a change. That's the whole point. Now there's also another common approach called wet cupping. Now, wet cupping is interesting because it's more Eastern philosophy, but the practitioner will actually take a sterile razor blade or a scalpel and actually cut in small incisions to let the old toxic blood be sucked into the cup as the negative pressure is pulling it out, okay? And I, I know a lot of you guys are thinking or you maybe heard about it. I know some people are like, wow, you know, I would never do that. But in some countries, and there's actually some research to support wet cupping for different medical issues and stuff. Now, obviously here in the United States, most, most states won't allow this because you're working with bloodborne pathogens, right? So you have to take universal precautions. You're also worried about contamination and also infection. So we have a lot of things we can do, but it's interesting when we, when you actually dig into cupping, how wet cupping has been around for a long time. Okay. So then here's, here's just some images for, for you all looking at this. If we start at, at the, you know, the image on the top left, we can see your simple, like I showed you before, a simple plastic cup at the pump. Okay. The next image going to the right would be cupping. And then the, the larger image to the far right, we can see here is that's where the practitioner made small perforations in the skin. And then they were doing what's called wet cupping. And then at the very bottom, this is interesting. It's called fire cupping. And fire cupping is where the practitioner, and this is mainly done with, with traditional acupuncturists. They'll actually light a cotton ball on fire. They'll stick it in the, the plastic cup. Okay. So here, if I kind of demonstrate, they'll take it, they'll stick it in the plastic cup. That takes out the oxygen and creates a very strong negative pressure. And then they quickly put it on the skin and then the skin gets sucked up into the cup, um, you know, at a very fast rate. And I've had this done before and I'm being honest, it doesn't feel great. <laughs> you know, so I, I was, you know, I had an acupuncturist that I worked with for a long time and she was in the fire cupping and I'm telling you, it really is uncomfortable. But the theory is, is that with fire cupping, it's creating such a negative pressure. It's going to kind of decompress, right? And kind of lift up the myofascia to allow the fluid and the toxins and kind of et cetera, et cetera, to move through. So again, you know, really, I think just in summary, the safest would probably be just silicone cupping and the most risky and most, you know, legal, you know, as far as professional legality would be obviously the wet cupping. So just kind of interesting on, on how it's changed over the years. So then when we talk about dry cupping, though, we're going to talk more about that because, you know, we're in this presentation, you know, we're only we're trying to condense everything. When we when we talk about dry cupping, basically, if you look at the image here, I have my son, he's doing a closed chain squat. OK, basically, I put lotion or emollient on his IT band and as he squats, I'm just dragging the cup just along, okay, just along the surface of the IT band to help decompress from the knee all the way up to the greater trochanter. 
Okay, so that's this has been a popular one among rehabilitation professionals and stuff, massage therapists, etc. On um, doing that, so it's one of the more common ones of dry cupping that I wanted to kind of show everybody. That's what we do, and you know, and believe it or not, I've seen some really good changes in my patients, especially my son. Right, <laughs> so yeah, from there. Okay, so our next clinical question is what? What's the research behind cupping? Well, as you know, it's been around for thousands of years, right? So we, we can see though, if I pulled the research from like the last five years, um, a little bit more than that, you know, when we're talking about the last five, maybe 10 years, I was looking at it. Well, I found a lot of systematic reviews where, where researchers looked at all the research and they kind of, you know, put everything together. Well, from 2018 to 2020, you can see that there's a ton of systematic reviews on cupping itself. And, um, and remember, this is in the English literature. We haven't even broke into more of the Asian literature, et cetera, et cetera. So really kind of simply, you know, simple summary is that there's moderate to weak, weak evidence for therapeutic benefits for dry, for dry cupping, for, you know, chronic pain, spine issues, arthritis. We know for sure that it, it, it improves flexibility, mobility, and performance. Um, wet cupping also, like what I said, has some research. And we know that that has been shown to have improvements in hypertension, um, non-specific low back pain, neck pain, and carpal tunnel syndrome. So again, just a quick summary of the research. We know, in my opinion, that we have a good body of research. Obviously, every study is different, so you're going to get some mixed outcomes. But in my opinion, the, the total body of research is pretty strong for cupping. Okay. And then obviously, we go to what are the obvious precautions and contraindications. And in, in my opinion, one of the big things that that are that are kind of has been, you know, challenging professionals is really do those crop circles. Uh, is that considered trauma or is it is it part of the acceptable treatment? That's one of the big arguments that kind of go around. And that's the most obvious kind of um, side effect or adverse event that can occur from this. Now, obviously, if you have like a sunburn or you have skin sensitivity, you have an open wound, you know, kind of what was, was talked about in table one in the PowerPoint, we can see that those are obvious ones that you don't want to do it on. But one question that's interesting is, is that, you know, are those crop circles, are you causing more damage or are you actually helping the healing process? And that's to be debated and that's still under study. But I think it's something to, to kind of, you know, kind of share with you all who are listening, because that's something that we see all the time. So kind of interesting, something to think about. Okay, so really the bottom line is, is we know that cupping has a good body of research for short-term results, okay? Usually four to six weeks, we see most of the research say that you have benefits from cupping. Um, and also too, it's, it's important to appreciate that Western medicine, right? They kind of went right and they they made it more into a myofascial intervention versus a Eastern medicine mainstream treatment for detoxification and other medical conditions. Okay, so overall, though, I give this an evidence grade of a B. I'm happy with that. And I think it's I think they have some good research. So so as we could as we could see kind of, you know kind of in summary, you know, we have three emerging interventions, right? You know, they're all popular among clients and professionals and stuff like that. But we can see that some of them have good research. 
Some of them have a little bit of research and some of them don't. So these are, these are factors that I want you all to um, consider as we go towards topic five, which is corrective exercise. And I think, I think we all, you know, we've all known that, you know, we want to promote better human movement. But I always go by, if, if, you, if everyone kind of looks at the slide and kind of reads with me, I, use, I like to go by really kind of one thought process, that if you don't like what you see, then change the input, okay? Try to communicate differently to the client using visual, verbal, tactile, or movement input. Because if, you're, if, you're, if your input is effective, in my opinion, the client will download the software and then they're going to improve on their exercise of the task that they do. So I think it's so important for us to, as the center of information, to be accurate and not overload, okay? Don't overload our clients, but to really be on, on task. And I think that that's important as we move into corrective exercise, okay? Now, we've all seen the corrective exercise continuum where we have four stages, inhibit, lengthen, activate, integrate we're mainly going to be playing with inhibit and lengthen, okay? And I think that's important because that's where, in my opinion, the myofascial interventions are most effective from there, okay? So um, on the next couple slides, I actually proposed a couple of recipes for everybody who's, who's in with this talk, and I broke them up into pre-activity and post-activity, okay? And I use them for the three interventions we're talking about. So first, first and foremost, Mechanical percussion, okay? When we talk about pre-activity, I really like, this is what I do with my patients and stuff. I really, or my clients, I really like to start with a dynamic warm-up, okay? 90 seconds per muscle group with a total time of about five to 10 minutes. In my opinion, this is helping the client upregulate the nervous system, right? They're getting more sympathetic. They're moving their body. We're getting fluid changes. We're getting our core temperature up. Then from there, I like to move more towards mechanical percussion and motion. And again, if we look on the left, we're going clockwise, um, you know? And so when it, when it comes to mechanical per percussion and motion, I like to maybe do some squats, like a closed chain exercise with actually the mechanical, mechanical percussion. And I'll show you in a second with some videos, but typically 30 seconds to a minute. So we're gonna do a short time period. We're not going to hang out and try to try to calm the nervous system now. We want to excite it, right? I still like the level one and two, but it's going to be a quicker motion. You're going to go back and forth a lot quicker than you would maybe post, okay? Then from there, once you get the desired effect, then you're going to move into your sports-specific or activity-specific movements, okay? And so that's kind of the recipe I like to do for my clients they enjoy it and I get good outcomes. I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Now, when we talk about post, post activity or post, you know, post exercise, we, we typically do a general cool down because we want to, we want to take them from a sympathetic state to more of a parasympathetic state, kind of calm them down. We can do it everything from five to 10 minutes. And then we're still going to do the same thing. We're going to do mechanical percussion, but we're going to introduce a stretch to it. Okay. We're going to have them really kind of, you know, maybe do some stretching as we're doing the mechanical percussion. So we're lengthening and also compressing the myofascia, um, two minutes per muscle group. Okay. We're still using the level one and two, and then we're taking a slower tempo when we're moving the device. Okay. And then from there, we can work into our static stretching 
and active isolating to really get some expansive lengthening if we need to. Okay. And I think that that's important. So, so when we talk about inhibit and lengthen, you know, I think, you know, pre-activity, post-activity, we can, sometimes we can be a little bit more excitatory or we can really calm it down. And so that's what I'm proposing as far as a kind of non-evidence-based recipe for mechanical percussion at this time. Um, obviously, when, when we get back in our research lab, we're definitely going to study these recipes and see if we can validate them. And I think that's important. Okay, now as we look here at the videos, I simply just have my son doing the three kind of techniques, sweep, drill, clock, and you can do it with motion. And so we may have to wait for a second for these videos to go, but you can see um, the starting from left to right, we have a, just a simple lunge with a sweeping pattern, okay? We have, you know, kind of a, a, a drill and sweep where he's pushing down a little bit more for an open chain. Okay, we also have, um, if we look at the third one from left to right, we're just using a foam roller. And then one thing I thought that was neat, and I wanna show everybody, if we look at the far right, I have my son doing a, using a, a you know, a, a large rubber band, um, doing a hamstring stretch, but he's doing a uh, mechanical percussion to the quads. And he's also integrating, as you can see, a little bit of contract relax. So we're trying to use reciprocal inhibition. So, so again, I encourage everybody to really be kind of inventive, right? Be, be kind of, you know, have a good imagination using these tools because the percussion devices are so much fun, but you can, as you can see from the videos, you can really integrate them into a lot of stuff. So again, these are just kind of some, some ideas just to kind of spark that, that fire in everybody so that you can start using these and hopefully with some of your techniques on social media too. I think that's great. Okay, so when we talk about floss bands and we'll quickly go through these recipes because they're very similar, we're still gonna do the same dynamic warm, okay? Um, the floss band, but now as we go clockwise, we're gonna introduce the floss band with motion. We're still gonna use the 50-50 or 50-90 recipe, right? Overlap it, tension it, okay? Then we're gonna work into the sports specific activity. So again, not much change from the other mechanical percussion. Now, as we move to the right of the slide, we can see post-activity, pretty much the same recipe, right? We gotta do a general cool down. Then we're gonna introduce floss band with motion, but we might increase our per se treatment time, right? We may, we may extend it and, and do a little bit slower and really try to get that deep massage from us wrapping that around the body. And then we would obviously work into our lengthening techniques static stretching, active, isolated, PNF, whatever we want to do, we want to kind of work with that. So, so that's kind of a recipe that I'm proposing. I use that, especially with floss bands with my clients, they do like it post-exercise, okay? And they do, they do report to me, and we haven't proven this yet, but they do report to me that it helps them with their delayed onset of muscle soreness. Okay, so again, anecdotal, but we need to study it more, but we're seeing some promising stuff, okay? And then again, here, as far as sake of time and stuff, we can see that we just have the videos of them working and stuff. And that's just a summary of, you know, the wrapping technique and stuff. And um, <clears throat> just to appreciate that, you know, sometimes, and I wanna, I wanna use, these, use this slide as a quick discussion, is that we have to remember, if you pull too tight, you could cause blood flow occlusion or restriction. 
So we want to be careful with that because you don't want to cause any nerve damage or cut off any circulation too much. So I like to use the 50-50 and really use as a myofascial intervention versus trying to pull too tight. Because again, some people have mixed this up with blood flow restriction and it's a totally different science. So I want to make sure that everyone who's, you know, everyone who's here today is important to understand. Okay. All right. So now as, so now as we move forward, here's just another technique as we can see here too, where we have the floss band. And I use this, if we're looking at the video, I use this on a two week post um, surge ACL patient who had surgery, right? So, so, so the patient had ACL repair. Okay. And we can see here, I use a vibrating foam roller with the floss band. The, the patient after their ACL surgery complained of a lot of quad tightness and spasm. So this is one of the, one of the home exercises I gave them to do because the vibration of the, of the foam roller with the um, compression of the band really made them feel good. They felt that they had some relief and stuff. So again, you know, try, try to try to mix it up a little bit with your clients and stuff and try new things. Okay. Okay. And our last one is, is cupping. And so as we go through, as we finish up here, we got a few more minutes. When we talk about cupping and stuff, we kind of fall through, we kind of fall into that same pre-activity and post-activity um, recipes that you guys can see, okay? And again, if we look at the slides, we can see it's very similar where we're doing the one to two minute treatment, okay? So we're gonna move forward past the slide because it's very similar to the other ones. And again, we can see here too with the video, I kind of just demonstrated, and we'll see if the video starts here in a sec. Yeah, we can see here with the video that I'm doing more of an open chain massage cupping Okay. And then in the video, in the video too, we also showed you the closed chain. And I think that that's important to kind of go from there. Okay. So then we got, we got a couple last topics. I want to kind of go over really quick with everybody is that client hygiene and device cleaning. We'll go through this quickly. So what are best practices, especially during the COVID era, right? What are we going to do? Well, when we look at this slide here, very simply, I like to use a barrier between the mechanical percussion device, okay, and the skin. And I think that that's important. You can do it over clothes, you can do it over, over a towel. If not, you wanna make sure you clean the applicator tip, okay, um, before and after, right, every patient. And the reason why I say that is, you know, you wanna make sure that I usually wipe it down before and also I'll soak it or wipe it off after using some type of inter intermediate level disinfectant like 70% isopropyl alcohol or even Lysol. Okay, you know, the Lysol wipes and stuff. And that's important. That's the same thing with floss bands though. You know, we, you know the, best, the best recipe that I've used is every client should have their own floss band. Now you can wrap over clothing, but you're still get, you're not gonna get the same effect, okay? So if you're gonna wrap directly on the skin, um, every client should have their own wrap. Okay. Now also too, if you're going to, if you're going to clean, if you're going to clean the floss band, typically use soap and water. Okay. Because if you're going to use a cleaning agent, I've seen it break apart the integrity of the band and then the band is not as useless. now. So I think it's important to use soap and water or possibly try to find some cleaning agent, like maybe a Lysol wipe or something that'll handle it. But most of the time we've seen that soap and water 
That's why we want everybody to have their own floss band so that we don't have any cross-contamination. Okay, and then obviously with cupping, yes, you have to disinfect the cup, you know, the plastic cups or the silicone cups using, you know, um, you know, using a cleaning agent that's appropriate. And then obviously you rinse it off before you use it again. Okay, so that's kind of standard from there. And then, and so then the last kind of topic that we're going to talk about is should we, should the client actually administer the myofascial intervention? Or should the professional do it? Well, there's several pros and cons. I mean, I think the pro is that if you if you actually do it with the client and, you, and you're administering the treatment, you know, there's more interaction, you create more opportunities, and you may improve the perception of services. But the con is very simple. You're going to be held to a, a higher legal liability because you're actually doing the treatment. The client may also feel uneasy. The fitness organization, too, that you work for may or may not allow you to do it. Okay, so, and again, stuff like, you know, interventions like cupping may or not be within your scope of practice. So I think it's important as we quickly talk about this, that you need, you need to decide, is it better for the client to do it themselves or is it better for, for you to do it? Okay, and that, that's a really a professional decision. And again, you know, if you have the client do it themselves, it really takes care of a lot of professional issues. That's a trainer tip below. And also, too, if you're going to film something, just use your cell phone because that 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 moves around headphones stuff. Okay. And then our last topic is precautions and contraindications. These are mainly just summary slides from everybody. Um, I'm not going to go into each of these medical conditions, okay, the common conditions and stuff too much, okay. But just realize that this slide is mainly for a reference as far as the many precautions that you have to consider when you're using any type of myofascial compression intervention. Also too, there's specific contraindications. So if you ever get some time, I would, I would recommend that you kind of go through the slide and make sure that you're familiar with a lot of this stuff. Because again, we want our clients to have a great experience and we want to have fun, but most of all, we need to be safe, okay? And so, so I think that that's, that's the most important aspect of everything. So final thoughts, you know, today we introduced three emerging myofascial interventions and I think we need more guidelines by, for healthcare professionals and fitness professionals to actually do them. But we also have to consider the scope of practice when we do this. Um, these interventions are great, they're fun, but we also wanna make sure too though, that proper training is, is you know, the, the professional has proper training and also we train the client. So again, try to be safe, have some fun. And again, I hope everybody enjoyed the talk today. I wanna thank you for attending. Um, this, this presentation and this chat, and I hope within a nice, concise hour, I've given you some good nuggets that you could take back to your clients and stuff. Now, if anyone has any questions for me, or if you want to dig deeper in a client or a topic, you could easily look me up on, um, my website. I'm on Facebook. Also too, you can reach me via email. So, so feel free to reach out. I would love to collaborate with everybody. And again, thank you for attending and I hope you enjoyed. So, hey, everybody, have fun at uh, Optima 2020 Virtual.